Thanks, Mike. And uh, good morning. My name's Toby, one of the pastors here, and we're starting a new series today called People in Prayer. And before we kick it off, just want you to have a quick little conversation with the people beside you. And here's the question that I've got for you. Why do we pray? Uh, what's, wh- wh- why is it that we pray? Is it, uh, yeah, there you go. There's the question. Um, have a little chat. Introduce yourself to people around you. Uh, but that's the question, why do we pray? Alrighty. Um, anyone got some answers? I won't um, disagree with them. Um, I'll just let them sit. But why? Why do we pray? Time with God. Yeah, have some time with God. Any other reasons why we pray? To be in relationship with Him. Any other reasons? Obedience. Dependence. Faith. It's powerful that he answers prayer. So if we want something, ask for it and he'll give it. Yeah? No? He says pretty much that in the Gospels. Jesus says it. You do not have because you do not ask. Um, Yeah, any other reasons? Dave Fox and I went for a walk on Thursday night. And we would, 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 this is what we were talking about, wasn't it? And um, and in particular, when... um, when God doesn't answer our prayers, what's going on? And you know, what is the point of prayer, particularly when sometimes he doesn't give us what we ask, even though what we ask is really important? And so Dave and I had a friend who died a couple of years ago, and it was, um, she was 30, died of cancer, eight, eight nine years with cancer. And um, it was a very um, traumatic time for us watching her die. And, you know, we still, why didn't God answer our prayers? And, um, and so, as you know, that's going on for us. And hopefully this series gives us confidence, courage, and creates among us a group of people who are praying. Um, and, yeah, so that's what we're going to do. When I was growing up, um, dinner time at the Neil family was for eating. And I was the world champion. I could eat more than anyone else, and I could eat faster than anyone else. And I'm willing to actually prove that. Anyone wants to have a competition uh, to see who can eat something quicker than me, I reckon I'm going to win. Anyway, maybe we'll do this as an 11am um, social one time, watching me eat something really quick. Anyway, when I, started, when I started dating my wife, she'd come over and she would be flabbergasted because what our family would do, we would sit at the table, eat, and then leave the table, put the dishes in the dishwasher. And she was just like, where is everyone gone? She'd be left at the dinner table by herself because we'd all finished the meal and gone and she'd only got a third of the way through her dinner. Uh, Because eating is for eating, isn't it? And then I went to her place and I found out that a dinner is not just for eating, but it's for spending time with one another. And Liz's family, they'd sit there for like two hours for dinner. I'm like, two hours? What are you doing? And uh, they'd sit, they'd talk, they'd debate, they'd pray. I used to call her family the Von Trapp family because they would, after dinner, they'd get around the piano and start singing together. It was so weird. But this family, they enjoyed spending time with one another. Oh, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Uh, and so it's, it, it started to change my values. And I started to think, oh, dinner is a time of community, of fellowship, 
uh, of where we actually can minister to one another, which is why uh, guess who's coming to dinner is so important. It's not just the food. It's about spending time with people and investing in one another. So I encourage you to come along to that. But when it comes to prayer, this series is really like me going to the Orpwoods for dinner, Liz's family. It's a series where we're listening into the prayers of people in the Bible that we might have our own hearts shaped by what motivated them and that we might become prayers like them. I think the majority of us, when it comes to prayer, we're like the Neil family. Oh yeah, we, we pray quick and then we get out of there. But what would it like actually to pray more meaningful prayers where there was a closeness to God? So that's what we're thinking about in this series. Now in life, there are times... Uh, I don't know whether you've experienced it, where things are falling apart, where there's chaos, where it feels like everything around you is going in the wrong direction, and we're powerless to stop the chaos. And sometimes even moments like that, it feels like God's left the building. That is Moses in Exodus chapter 33. Uh, The situation is Moses was the leader of the people of Israel, um, and he'd met with God face to face in the burning bush. He'd seen God's glory, a bush that did not burn up, and God spoke to him. He was the instrument through which God performed signs and wonders in Egypt. Do you remember he turned the Nile River to blood? There were the plagues of frogs, gnats, flies, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the avenging angel of death came and killed the firstborn. And all of Israel saw this, and then they watched as... Through the leadership of Moses, uh, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, brought them to the Red Sea, and then the Egyptian armies come and go, oh no, we're not going to let them go, and they were chasing them, and God found a way where there was no way, through the waters of the Red Sea, he parted the sea, they walked through, and then God closes the sea on the armies of Egypt. They all saw this. They were brought into the wilderness where God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In the wilderness, they had no food, but God fed them with quail and manna. They had no water. God gave them water from the rock. And they br- God brought all of the people to Mount Sinai where he met with them. It was the day of the church, Mount Sinai. God was gathering with his people. And in Exodus 19, this is what we read. If you've got your Bible, open up Exodus 19, verse 4. The Lord says to Moses, this is what you're to say to the people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully... And keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites, he tells Moses. And so this was the high watermark of their history. This was their wedding day. God had brought the people, and he was marrying them on this day. The Lord had chosen them. He'd brought them to Mount Sinai where he would make his promises to them and they would make their promises to him. Never before had God acted so visibly and powerfully on behalf of a people. And this is the time of all times where you'd expect a people to behave and honour the Lord their God. But they got bored waiting for God waiting for Moses to come back from meeting with God. And so they asked Moses, do you remember this story in Exodus 32? They asked Aaron, the priest, to make an idol of gold. They make a golden calf and they bow down to it. They worship it. They make sacrifices to it. They bow to this idol. And when Moses comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments in both hands, the, the commandments written in stone, th- about to marry the people of Israel. God was about to covenant with his people. He comes down to a group of people who are worshipping idols, drinking, dancing, and having orgies. And, it's, and he loses his mind. You know, uh, I, I know a guy who is a pastor, and once he had a girl in his church come and tell him that her husband cheated on her on their honeymoon. Isn't that awful? 
That's what the people of Israel are doing here. This is their wedding day. And they start cheating on God on their wedding day, worshipping idols. And so what do you do when you've lost your faith in humanity? What do you do when you've lost your faith in the church? What do you do when you're confronted by this gross sin and the future looks helpless? Moses prays a desperate prayer. And I want to take you through a couple of things that he prays to the Lord his God. And the first one is, sorry, the PowerPoint's a bit slow today, is he, uh, he prays a prayer of forgiveness, verses 31 and 32. Before we get there, though, when the Lord sees Israel's idolatry, their wickedness, that they're cheating on him, he responds. Got your Bibles open? Exodus 32, verse 9. This is what the Lord says. He says, I've seen these people, and they have a stiff neck. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I might destroy them. And then, Moses, I'll make you into a great nation. Essentially, he says of the people of Israel, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them off the planet, the face of the planet. And Moses, I'm going to start again with you and your family. And that would be entirely fair and just. But it doesn't sit right with Moses. And so he prays this remarkable prayer, verse 31, toward the end of the chapter. He says, oh, what a great sin these people have committed, that they have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Now, what a prayer he prays. Moses freely admits the horrendous sin of his people. Oh, what great sin these people have committed against you, Lord God. There are no excuses for sin, and he doesn't make an excuse. Now, it's true that temptation under some circumstances is harder to resist than under other circumstances. Sometimes there are extenuating circumstances that, from our point of view, can mitigate the offense. But sin is sin. Cancer is no less deadly because we have some explanation for it, nor is sin. Sin is always sinful. It's always abhorrent. And the mercy we plead is not on the ground of extenuating circumstances. God is aware of our circumstances, but the terrible nature of sin remains. And yet Moses, he prays to the Lord and he doesn't shift blame. He owns it. He puts everything on the table. He knows God would be right to wipe the people off, but instead he prays, God, please forgive their sin. And if we're to pray as he did, we must be aware of the same things and have the same attitude. We don't condemn, but nor do we dare excuse sin. And here is the acid proof of just Moses' heart. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 32? He says, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Moses stands or falls with his people. He's like, God, rather than punishing them, punish me that they may, may escape this judgment. Now, who does that remind you of? Isn't that interesting? Because we have the Lord Jesus who says the same thing for you and me to God, which is, Father, forgive them as he's dying for us. See, that's the thing. He says, God, rather than blotting them out from life, blot me out that they might be forgiven. See, Jesus is the true Moses who says, please forgive them, and he dies to make it possible for God to forgive us. And um, so notice Moses, he's outraged by what people are doing on their wedding day, but he loves them all the same, deeply. And he's desperate that God does not destroy the men and women who he had chosen. He's like, what are all the other nations going to say? That these people you've chosen, you've just wiped off? They'll question your character if you do that, God. God, forbear with them. See, Moses loves his people. And one thing matters to him, that they be delivered from the consuming fire of God's judgment. Now, here's the question. How, have you ever prayed like that? 
Are you concerned that millions in our country receive forgiveness from God? Because there are millions of people in our country who receive the gifts of God, receive life and health and prosperity, for whom Jesus came to die, and yet they ignore him. They rebel against it. They, they don't confess their sins to God. They're not sorry for it. They don't repent. They don't trust Jesus. And as a result, the Bible says they are dead in their sins and under God's condemnation, waiting for the day to come when God would return to judge the world. Does that burden your heart? Have we become spiritually weak that the prospect of God's judgment doesn't weigh heavily on us? Are we so loveless that we don't plead for God's mercy on our city, that he would come and save and draw sinners so that they might receive forgiveness? Rico Tice is a UK pastor, and I remember a story he told about when he was at university and he was playing rugby, you know, he was a Christian, he knew he had to share the gospel, but he was too intimidated by these big rugby guys around him, so he, he kind of never did. Um, and then one day he mustered the courage to share a sermon, share a talk, back in the days when you'd give out cassette tapes, right? So this is back, anyone remember sermons on cassette? Is it just me, a couple of us? Yep. Anyway, so he gave a cassette tape to a guy, and the guy listened to it and actually found it really helpful that he passed that tape on to another guy on the rugby team. And this guy listened to the tape and came to under hear the gospel, and he got really, really angry because Rico hadn't given him the tape. And he ended up confronting Rico, saying, um, saying, if that's what you believe, if you believe the, this gospel, which you'd given my mate, but you didn't give to me, if you've said nothing to me for months, that means you're not really my friend. I mean, how could you keep this good news to yourself and call me your friend? Do you get that? And that's what Moses is going through. Moses sees the plight of his people whom he loves, and he cannot not pray that the Lord would change his heart towards them in condemning them. And that's what... Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a church were gripped by prayers like that for the people of our city? And not just for the prayers of our city, because often it's not just people out there who need God's forgiveness. Sometimes people in here who need God's forgiveness. And there are some times where Christians and churches can dishonor God in such profound ways and hurt people in such profound ways um, that we can grow very critical of churches. There's this whole movement of, uh, of Christians these days called ex-evangelicals. Have you heard that term before of just people who are jaded with the church and they end up going off and believing whatever they want? And they, they throw the church under the bus because it's a, it's a group of sinners, which we are, but you notice Moses here, he doesn't write his people off to stop, despite being a bus full of sinners. He identifies with them. And everything depends on the stance we choose to stay. Is the church they or is it we? Because Moses wasn't at the bottom of the mountain eating, drinking, and doing the orgies like the rest of his people, but he... He identifies with them. And everything depends on that view we take. Is the church they or is it we? And are you concerned enough to stand with God's people and pray for them when they sin, when they fall, despite what you see? Are they still God's people and our people? That's what Moses prays. He refuses to give up his people. And so he prays, God, forgive them. And that prayer delights God, and God answers, verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. So that's prayer number one. He prays for forgiveness. And I'd love for us, would we be gripped, that we would be praying for the salvation of people around us and their forgiveness. Second prayer, prayer number two, is a prayer of presence. Because the Lord answers Moses' prayer and he says, I will not destroy Israel, but the matter is not ended because God, he says, I won't 
destroy them. I'll send them into the promised land. I'll give them everything they need, but I'm not going up with them. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on earth, on earth, on earth to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff neck, stiff a, st- a stiff necked, <laughs> a st- stiff necked people, a stiff necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. In other words, Israel is so fickle, so stubborn-hearted that if God goes with them, if He stays within their camp, His anger will just burst out and destroy them. It's a little bit like it's the reason why if I was to go away with Liz for just a weekend, the two of us, I probably should not take a surfboard, right? Because if the surfboard's with me, I'll end up abandoning her and just go surfing the whole weekend, right? It's better off I don't take the surfboard. And it's a little bit like that for God, only the problem doesn't lie with his selfishness, but the people's fickleness. Does that make sense? Different illustration is I've got at my home, I've got a little courtyard, and we, we've got a fire pit where we have fires. And it's a great place to have fires at night, sit around, beautiful, right? But the wrong place to put a fire pit would be at a service station, right? I mean, there's, there's, you can buy firewood there. Seems like a good place to have a fire, right? But it's a terrible place to have a fire. Why? Because it's too risky. The petrol might catch a spark and bang. And the people of Israel are so fickle, so stiff-necked, so volatile towards sin, like pet, they are like petrol, and God is a consuming fire, and he's like, I cannot go up with you. I'm going to send you, but for your sake, I'm not coming. Because like a spark to petrol is my wrath to your volatile sinfulness. And so what ends up happening, we read this, Moses ends up pitching a tent outside the camp. Prior to that, God was in the middle of the camp, led the people by a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire at night. He was in the midst of them. And do you remember when we get to building the temple, the temple's in the midst of the city of Jerusalem so that the people can come and dwell in the presence of God. But at this point, God's like, no, I'm leaving. I can't live with you guys. You're like petrol to my consuming fire. And so he ends up, It's a little bit like Tim Winton's Cloud Street. You know, Oriel ends up in the backyard, in the tent in the backyard. No one Tim Winton fans. One person. Thank you. All right. Uh, I need to get rid of that illustration. But, um, you know, he ends up, and so Moses comes out from the camp, and he goes to the tent of meeting where he would enter into the presence of God, and he would meet with God, and God would speak to him. And do you notice there that verse, which is, Verse, um, uh, verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Moses had that, but the people of Israel could not. It was not safe for them. And so God's essentially, he says to them, look, I'll send you up into the land. I'll clear your enemies for you. I'll destroy your enemies. I'll fight for you. I'll give you prosperity. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. You'll have wealth and health and peace, and I'll be wonderful. But I won't be in the middle of that. But you'll have everything you've wanted, but I, I'm, I can't go with you. And you know what? An awful lot of people would be happy with that. If God came down to you and said, hey, I won't let anything bad happen to you, I'll make you rich, I'll make you beautiful, I'll give you everything you want, but I won't be at the center of your life. How many of us would go, yeah, sounds good. You know, I wonder what would happen if God said to us that we could have everything we wanted minus his presence. 
All our dreams come true, but without him. I remember reading a book by John Piper, and this is the question he asked. He said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all your friends you ever had on earth, and with all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with that? If Christ were not there. For Moses, the answer was absolutely not. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, My presence will go with you, Moses, and I'll give you rest. But Moses said to him, verse 15, No, no, no. If your presence does not go with us, not just with me, but with us, don't send us up from here. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I don't want success. I don't want power. I don't want your guidance. I don't want the land flowing with milk and honey. If you're not with us, if you're not in the middle of our lives, if we're all of us are not able to meet fully with you. And if that's not what's on offer, then we don't want anything else. Now, is that a prayer you would pray? God, if you won't go with me, I don't want the prosperity. If you're not in my life, I don't want health. If you're not in my life, it doesn't matter what else I have in my life, I will not be content. See, what in your prayers, what do you most pray for? God, can I have this? Can I have that? I need this. I need that. This job, this husband, a wife, safety, a solution, healing, an opportunity, success, change this. Or do you pray, God, I need you in this moment of my life. More than anything else, that's what I need. I'd love to change this situation, but more importantly, I need you. See, most people come to God and they'll say something like this, God, I'll follow you. Yeah, I'll follow you if you get me out of trouble, if you give me success if you give me kids, if my investments perform well, if you give me a spouse, if you give me health, then I'll follow you. But a Christian someone who is different. A Christian is someone who says, God, I'll be able to deal with trouble. I'll be able to endure illness. I'll be able to cope with singleness. I'll be able to survive unemployment if you're with me. See, two very different Ways of living. Most people say, I'll follow you if you get me out of trouble. But a Christian says, I'll be in trouble if you're not with me. And you see what's going on there. You end up with something that's negotiable in your life and something that's non-negotiable. And the thing is, when you're saying, God, I'll follow you if you have a non-negotiable. And I don't know what it is. For all of us, it's different. Whether it's a husband, a wife, kids a job, wealth, success, whatever it is. That's the non-negotiable in your life. And you're saying, God, if you give me that, then I'll follow you. But he's negotiable. This thing's not negotiable. And when you do that, it's a very evil thing because you're using God. That's what's going on. Imagine, just imagine um, you get engaged to be married and as you get in, before you got engaged, you had a grandmother who died, left you an inheritance. And you have all of this money and you invest it and um, the investment absolutely tanks. You lose everything and you're, you tell it to your fiance, oh, you know that investment that I made with my grandmother's uh, inheritance, lost it all, it's all gone. Now imagine, she said, well, hey, if that's the case, um, then forget the marriage. I'm out of here. You know, she breaks the engagement. How would you feel? You'd feel violated. You'd say, this person didn't love me for myself. I was a means to an end for them. This person loved me for the money. It was the money they loved, and I was just the means to an end. And here's the question, is that the way you approach God? You know, how would you know? if that's the way you approach God. Well, what do you do when life doesn't go the way you'd planned? I've been living a good look. God, I've been coming to church. God, I've been praying. God, I've been giving. God, I've been doing all the right things, and yet you haven't given me. Well, what are you going to do in that? God, you haven't answered my prayers. Well, what are you going to do in that moment? Is he or not? He's still in your... Great. 
or is the other thing a non-negotiable? You know, I think many times we treat God like the guy at the front of the puck in a curling team in the Winter Olympics. You know um, Winter Olympics? You know the sport of curling? How they send a puck down a piece of ice and there's that guy scrubbing the ice, polishing the ice. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I think often we kind of treat God like the guy that's polishing the ice with the puck. You know, uh, we, 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 uh, we, we expect God to be feverishly polishing the floor in front of the curling stone so that it has so that our lives have a frictionless ride to the goals we set. We set the direction, he clears the floor. That's the deal, isn't it? And how would you know that you truly believe the gospel? Well, it's how you treat Jesus when he stops polishing the floor in the direction that you would have him have the puck go. All right, that's the test. And that's what Moses is praying, isn't it? He's saying, hey, God, it would be, be great for us to live in a land flowing of milk and honey. It would be great for us to be safe from all our enemies. But we want none of that unless you are with us. That's what we want. That's what he prays for. And that is a challenge. Is that what you pray for? That more than anything else, you would know the nearness of God, that he would be close to you, that he would be in your life. Not that he'd necessarily be pulling you out of circumstances, but the most important thing, that he would be with you and that you would be knowing him. Is that what you consider important? That's the second prayer he prays. Third prayer he prays. Firstly, he's prayed a prayer for forgiveness. Don't destroy them, God. And God says, okay, yes, I won't destroy you. Second prayer, Moses says, go up with us. If you don't go up, we don't want anything else. And God answers that prayer and says, okay, I'll do what you've asked. And then thirdly and finally, he, he, uh, he prays a prayer for glory. Now, at this point, most of us would be satisfied. Forgiveness, friendship with God, his presence, that would be enough. But not for Moses. Thirdly and finally, he prays now Verse 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 18, now show me your glory. There is in one sense in which Moses has already seen the glory of God. He was before the burning bush. He'd seen the signs and wonders in Egypt. God had led them through it, so he'd seen the glory, but he wanted more. He wanted more of God's face. Now, what is Glory. Two things. One, ascribe glory is the glory, the honor, the praise, the adoration, the awe with which we treat God. So we give him glory in the sense that we ascribe to him worth and value and honor and praise. And that is why we have been made. The chief end of your life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's ascribed glory. But there's also intrinsic glory which is the sum and substance of all that God is. It's to see the fullness of God's beauty and glory and greatness and perfection and majesty and luminescence and weightiness. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, gloriously wonderful and perfect. There's no one like him in the universe and he is glorious in every way. And human beings, you are hardwired for glory, for awe. You are desperate for your mind to be blown, your heart to be expanded and to be transported out of the mundane, out of the normal and into the wonderful, beautiful, satisfying, glorious experiences of life. Now that's true of us, isn't it? It's why I want the, the South Sydney Rabbitohs to win the grand final, you know, and they did terribly this year, but what is it's glory. It's 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 why I want to surf six foot offshore Lennox head with just my brother and a few mates with no one else out. It's why I want to eat pasta on a hot, sticky summer's night with a with a fire going, no mosquitoes, and a bottle of wine and a grump a, a great bunch of friends. It's why I want to be front row at a Mumford and Sons concert with banjo and drums blaring the sonically dense music, hearing the voice of Marcus Mumford scream at me, right? What is that? It's glory. 
And here's the role of all created glory. It's a finger pointing to the Creator saying, you will never have your heart captured by glory, have a, a glory satisfying your heart apart from His. Earth will never satisfy my heart. Earth will never be my Savior. It will never calm my heart. It will never give my heart peace or life or hope or meaning or satisfaction or contentment. And as long as there's sin within my heart, there will be this war for the rest of my life about what kind of glory will rule my heart. Will my heart be ruled? Will my life be shaped by an anxious pursuit of created glory? Or will my heart find its rest in the glory of God? Every sin you've ever committed was because you were searching for glory. Why did Israel ask Aaron to make a golden calf? It's because their heart hadn't been captured by God's glory. They wanted something in creation more than they wanted God. There are other glories that compete for our heart's highest joy. You know, what is lust? It's the exchange of God's glory for a momentary sexual pleasure. What is greed? It's the exchange of the glory of God for the glory of some physical possession. What is pride? It's living for self-glory instead of God's glory. It's believing the lie that your own glory can fill you up. And I think the Bible says that every sin at its root is believing the lie that the greatest glory is something in creation rather than in the Creator. I was reading an old author called Thomas Brooks recently, a book that he wrote called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And in it, he has this beautiful metaphor where he says, the heart of a man is a three-sided triangle. So girls, you're let off from this one. <laughs> Olden days, you know, human beings. But the heart of a man is a three-sided triangle which the whole round circle of the world cannot fill. But all the corners will complain of emptiness and hunger for something else. Do you hear what he says? The heart of a man is a three-sided triangle. You can, you can get the whole round of the world and put it in that triangle, and still the corners will complain of emptiness and still long for something more. St. Augustine said, I had my back to the light and my face toward the things that were illuminated before becoming a Christian. Hear what he's saying? He's saying the light of God's glory and goodness shines everywhere on the earth. And I was enjoying all of them. But I have my back to God, but there are all of these glories out there which I was enjoying because God's light was on them. And he realized, no, 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 I need to turn around and see the source of all that glory rather than worship the things of the world. And that's why Moses prays, God, show me your glory. And God answers that prayer by saying, no, kind of. He says, verse 19, Moses prays, verse 18, show me your glory. Verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. I'll cause my goodness to pass in. What does that mean? It means to see God's glory is to see his goodness. At heart, God is not raw power. At heart, he is goodness and love. So the Lord says, I'll cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion but you, Moses, cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. It would be easier for you and I to walk barefoot on the surface of the sun than for Moses to see God face to face. We would burn up like a cinder, and so God mercifully says, I will pass by you, Moses, but I'm going to erect some firewalls for you. He says, hey, here's what I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do, verse 21 to 23. 
Uh, I can't show you my full glory, can't show you my face, and you live, so instead I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock, a hole in the rock, firewall number one. Secondly, I'll put my hand over you, firewall number two. Thirdly, I'll pass by and you'll just see the afterglow. You won't see me, firewall number three. Because to see God face to face, it would be easier for us to walk on the surface of the sun than for Moses to see God face to face. And then chapter 34, it happens. Verse 6 and 7, if you've got a Bible there, this is what happens. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now that is God's answer to Moses' prayer for glory. It's a sermon, God's own sermon about himself. And if you understood God's sermon about himself here, your heart would see God's glory. So let's just look briefly before we finish at what God actually says about himself. He says, first of all, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate. The ancient gods weren't compassionate. They were stoic, uncaring, and unfeeling. They were distantly removed from the affairs of earth. But the Lord is unlike any other God the world has heard of. He is not impersonal. He is personal. He's not stoic. He's sensitive. He's compassionate. And this word compassionate means full of tender affection. He is not a cold, calculating deity. He is a God who has deep feelings for his people, warm affections. His heart goes out to us. That's the first, the Lord, compassionate, secondly, and gracious. This word gracious means to bend down or to stoop. So he have the sovereign, all-sufficient, all-powerful, self-existent, independent God who has no need of anything or anyone, and yet he stoops down all the way to the bottom of the barrel and lays his hands upon us. So great is his grace towards us. Thirdly, it says, and slow to anger towards sinners. He's slow to punish. He's slow to discipline. He is long-suffering with us. He's patient with us. He forbears with us. He isn't in a hurry to punish people. He extends repeated opportunities for us to turn back to God. And Moses will need to know that for the next 40 years. Not only is he slow to anger, he is abounding in love. So this is the glory Moses is seeing and learning. God's abound. What does the word abounding mean? It means to overflow in supply. The supply exceeds the demand. He's abounding in love. And this is his chesed love. You know that Hebrew word? It means unfailing, ever loyal unwavering, unfaltering love. And then it says, who keeps love to thousands, maintaining love to thousands. And I think it's not referring to uh, thousands of generations there. It's referring to thousands of years. It's talking about the duration of God's love, that he loves us all the way to the end with an infinite love maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness. Forgive here means to lift up, take away, to carry off a heavy burden. He lifts the guilt of sin and takes it off us, and he places it on his Son. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then it says, in forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, wickedness is deliberately turning away from God. Transgression or, or, or rebellion is, um, deviate, is rebelling against God and sin is missing the mark. And notice it says, 
forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, he forgets it all. He removes our sin as from east to west. But then finally, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is infinitely holy and just, and every sin in the universe will be paid in full one day. He will not sweep injustice and sin under the carpet. No one sin, every sin in the history of the world, every sin in your life, past, present, and future, will come under the full weight of the curse of God on that sin. Every sin will either be punished in hell or will be paid for by Christ in his death on the cross for those who put their trust in him. Every sin will come under the sledgehammer of the weight of God's justice. And for those families whose children have been treated the way they have this week in Palestine, that is incredibly good news, isn't it? But it's not just those like that. I have done what I have done in smaller ways is still sinful and rebellious and opposed to God's will, God will judge. You won't say, it doesn't really matter the way you treated that. It matters to Him because you matter to Him. And the way I treat you really does matter. Every sin will be punished. Either you will pay in hell or if you trust in Jesus, He paid so that you might be forgiven. That's how just God is. And all of this is the picture. If you saw this, you'd see God's glory. And that's why Moses bows down to the ground at the end, verse 8, and worships. So Moses hears, he doesn't actually get a glimpse of God's glory, but he hears about it. Gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding love, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. But you've seen it. Because we see this in the Lord Jesus, don't we? No one more gracious. No one whose love abounded to thousands. I mean, nothing could get him to drop us. No pain could get his grace, his compassion, his love. He's the most infinitely loving person in the history of the world. You've seen his glory. Moses couldn't see God face to face, but we have seen his glory. We beheld his glory. So notice this event, it happens after the golden calf incident where the people, they're worshipping a statue of gold that Aaron the priest makes. They exchange the image of God for an image of an animal. And the result, the point is, we can't live without glory. Something has to capture our hearts. And what this means is you will live your life going through life desperate for something glory to fill all the three corners of your soul. And if it's not God, it will enslave you. And what this means is that if you want to see the glory of God, you don't sit down on a high mountain and just ask and wait, God, show me your glory. You notice what happens? When God shows his glory, he gives you his name. He gives you the truth. He gives you his word, and he gives you a glimpse of Jesus. And as you reflect on the character of Jesus, because that's where we behold God's glory most fully, that's when we see his glory. We have something better than Moses had. It's when we see his graciousness and compassion and kindness. It's like up until that moment, life is like a a black and white TV. But when you see the glory of Jesus, gracious and compassionate, it's like watching TV in 8K. I don't think anyone's grasped this the way Jonathan Edwards, an old, an, old, um, an old writer, put it. He said, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and glory. You can know this. But there's a difference between knowing it and really knowing it, sensing it. He says it's like there's a difference between having a rational understanding that honey is sweet and having a sense of the sweetness of honey. What Edwards is saying, it's one thing to say, yeah, I know God loves me, 
But have you seen it? Have you tasted it? Has it really been poured into your heart? Is it really in 8K before your eyes? That's what your heart needs. It needs to be captured by the glory of God in His love and compassion and kindness and gentleness and His justice and holiness. Some of you say, yeah, I know God loves me, and yet you still live your life with a profound sense of shame and failure. What's going on there? Well, you don't have a sense on your heart of His love for you. Otherwise, you'd be living with confidence. Your life would be shaped less by your failings and more by His love. Some of you say, yeah, I know God's wise and powerful, but you're scared, you're worried, you're always anxious, you're worried about your money, your job, relationships, your kids, and you say, yeah, I know God lo- God's powerful and He's wise, but you don't see and know His wisdom and power. It's not a massive, majestic thing, his love and power that overshadows all the other threats in your life so that you live with boldness. You haven't seen. And so notice what Moses is praying here. Show me your glory. Fill my heart with such an awareness of your grace and love, your power and might, your wisdom and strength and your justice that the next 40 years, as difficult as they're going to be for Moses... I might not be tempted to live for other glories. Until that happens, until you taste and see the glory of God, there'll be a constant war for the supremacy of your heart in what rules it. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church prayed these three prayers, prayer of forgiveness, prayer for presence, and a prayer for glory? It'd be a bit like me going to the Orpids place and going, oh, this is what dinner's meant to be. It wouldn't be amazing if we in our community groups, at church, in one-to-one, in our friendships, there was a deep, real, abiding, profound prayerfulness. We're not just praying, oh, pray for my holiday coming up, but we might seek after God and pray for an awareness of God's glory. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's commit to that. Final thing I want to do is um, I've got some prayer cards for you to try and spark off the um, spark this up. Jonty uh, is going to hand these out. But um, what we've done is um, I've, I've given you a prayer to pray every day. Variety of different things um, in life, in church life, in, in civilian and social life. But here's a way just to start. Put this on your fridge, put it where you have breakfast, and every morning as you start the day, very simple, say a prayer. Um, But that's the goal of this series. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we as a church were praying deep prayers like Moses? Let's pray now. Oh, Jesus, make yourself to be a living bright and glorious reality to our hearts that we might love no one besides you. Amen.